Abandon all prejudices, all ye who enter here. Park your paradigms, perk up your ears, and open your mind as we now shine the laser light of reason on the topic of devastating insights into the current health crisis. From guest Ivan M. Payton. Hello, I'm David Bolton, and welcome to my podcast channel dedicated to helping people think more clearly, make sounder judgments, avoid superficiality, and above all, to unceasingly question instead of naively accepting what others want us to believe, for this is, as you know, the path of Socrates. People, I have a special guest today, someone with whom I've conversed privately through Facebook chat, but not publicly yet. Uh, this man's name is Ivan Payton. Did I pronounce that correctly, Ivan? <laughs> yep. Um, usually when I say my name uh, publicly like this, I put the M in there as well, which is something I omitted to tell you. So Ivan, Ivan M. Payton. M. Payton, to distinguish you from Ivan P. Payton and Ivan Q. Payton, I suppose, right? <laughs> well, exactly. When you, if you The Google world's full of Ivan, Ivan Payton, and I didn't know it because I've never heard yeah, that name. But... Neither did I until I Googled it, David. <laughs> I should use my middle name, Earl, more often. Because yeah. David Bolton's are kind of like a dime a dozen these days, David Earl Bolton. But then that makes me sound like, I don't know, James Earl Ray. You know. Yeah, well, you Although there's James Earl Jones drop, too, right? And you, he, was a, he was a good – Yeah, but you could drop the Earl and just put the E in there, David E. Bolton. David now E. That, Bolton. Yes, yeah, now that, that sounds really unique. Uh, yeah, but then, uh, then I remember back in school when I was a little kid, it was <laughs> – my initials, D-E-B, and they said, ah, Deb, Deb, you know, making fun of me. <laughs> I had to slap a few faces back then, but won't, won't get into that now. <laughs> okay, anyway, let's not go over a tangent right at the beginning. Ivan Payton is a really intelligent man, let me tell you, listeners out there, and I saw he was Thank truly you. on the right track. I saw him in certain Facebook groups, and so I connected to him. And I want to uh, talk with him about certain subject. And yes, you might have guessed it's about the masks, a world without faces. Ivan has looked into that even more deeply than I have. And he has some things to tell us, some insights to give, and some logic to lay on you. But first of all, Ivan, just introduce yourself and take you know the time you want. Tell us about yourself. Who are you? Where do you live? What are you doing? How have you spent? you spent your life because you're not what most people would call a young person, right? Uh, um, I would call you a young person because you're a few years younger than I am, but then uh, okay. that doesn't count. <laughs> yeah, well, so you please. know, let's not get into the age. I don't think it. I, I subscribe to the theory that age is just a number. And uh, I've got many good yeah. friends of mine that are a lot older than me that are actually a lot fitter than me, but I do uh, do my best to stay fit and healthy. So I think that I'm a fairly, uh, young person for the age that I am. I've got friends that aren't are younger we than all? Because I tell myself well, that too. I wonder older. if that's some kind of disease that old people get. The, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, maybe it's just the, the mindset, you know. So yeah. But all um, you young people okay, out there, so, don't turn us off thinking, "Oh, these two older guys know." With age comes <laughs> wisdom. At least you're lucky, and Ivan I, is one of those lucky ones because this is a wise man you're going to hear, a man who well, sees very you, clearly. Better. Very Tell us more about yourself. Tell uh, us more okay, about yourself. so I'll try and do this as briefly as possible. Uh, so I'm as an Australian. Uh, I grew up uh, on the move. My dad was the chief petty officer in the Australian Navy. I was born in Sydney, but we went up to New Guinea for three years while I was a young child, then back to Darwin, 
North Australia, which is where my mum's family was. We spent a few years there, then moved down to Brisbane and the Gold Coast. And then after I went to university, uh, I took my first uh, job in a door-to-door sales industry because it was right in the middle of a massive recession at that time in the early 1980s. I got very good at my job and ended up national sales manager by the age of 24 and uh, spent a total of, um, I think, six years in that industry. So both selling door-to-door, training people, running teams and expanding the national sales force around the country. And then I quit that job, had a bit of a break, wandered up the east coast of Australia and spent a bit of time working on a small resort on Fitzroy Island off Cairns. And uh, I was just killing time. Then I wandered back to Darwin, not thinking that I would actually stay there. I was just wandering and visiting people, basically. But then I saw an opportunity in tourism. Um, International tourism was just starting to boom at that period. So this was in 1987. And I opened up one of the, I think actually it was the first backpackers uh, hostel business in Mm -hmm. tourism in Darwin and stayed there for the next 10 years while I built various tourism business businesses. So I had two lodges, a bar, a restaurant, a camping safari business, a publishing business, and uh, we also manufactured souvenirs. Uh, wow. in the last you were couple busy. Of years. You were kind of busy. I was. <laughs> and uh, during that time, for four years, we published a, a little magazine that I was very proud of. We used to call it the Traveler's Bible for the Northern Territory. It was supported yeah. by advertising space and uh, gave the tourists it was a free publication we would hand out a hundred thousand copies a year around all the entry points to the northern territory and uh people would uh who got hold of one of those copies had a really up-to-date great guide to the tourist industry and where to go and what to see in the northern territory um after that i sold that business and then i went back down to the Gold Coast where we had a family property and I spent the next few years there pottering along. I had a bit of a health crisis at that time from working too hard while I was running my tourism-related business and I was determined to get my health back under control, which I did. And while I was there, I started amalgamating real estate, did some real estate renovations, mainly with my family. Um... I would get my brothers and my sister involved in helping me with different projects. And then I amalgamated some land, got it approved for uh, development and sat on it until it was ready to sell it. While we were still sitting on that, I started traveling and I went off to America and the Bahamas, ended up living in the Bahamas for a couple of years. And, uh, Again, I was just chilling out there. I spent a few months at a yoga retreat, learned how to do yoga for the first time in my life, mm-hmm. which has been a, a life-saving uh, skill. It helps to keep me fit and strong. I still practice it today, although not as intensely as when I was on the resort. And uh, then a few months in London, I went home to Australia uh, about that time and sold my real estate and then packed up again and went back to the Bahamas. And uh, after that, I uh, traveled back to London and then came back to 
this side of the world thinking that I would head home to Australia, but I stopped in Bangkok to visit a good friend of mine uh, from Australia who is here. He married a Thai lady. He's got now two grown, wonderful Thai Australian children. And that visit basically changed my life because I really liked it in Bangkok and Thailand. Mm -hmm. And so I stayed. I did an extensive amount of traveling in the first couple of years. And then I decided that I'd go to school and learn the language. So I went yeah. to school and university, got a diploma in Thai. And while I was doing that, I discovered the fundamental reasons that Thai people struggle with English pronunciation, mm -hmm. which is basically, um, since they're little children, they, they learn to read English words by using a Thai phonetic word, which I think the Japanese do exactly the same yeah, thing. Yeah, the phonetic alphabet, yeah. So they learn how to pronounce English very badly. Yes, exactly. And that, by having very bad pronunciation, it's a major impediment to listening, to understanding, and to speaking. And so it completely slows down your language learning uh, journey. Yes. Which yes. I know from learning Thai. Until I focused on learning the pronunciation and really mastering it, my Thai uh, language learning trip was basically the same. So today, though, I'm fluent in Thai, and I sat down after I did my diploma in Thai and spent a few years uh, writing a book called Pipas Let's Speak English, mm. which I actually wrote in Thai, but I gave it a, an English uh, title and um, explained the uh, things that I'd learned that can help Thai people to improve their English pronunciation. So that's how I came to be an author. That's my first book written in Thai. I'm working on a variety of other projects. And before COVID, I was busy selling my book, going out to markets, doing promotions, doing corporate training and seminars. I had uh, done uh, a couple of different seminars on my book and the subject of it and had some universities lined up to do seminars prior to COVID. Then COVID came along, shut down everything that I was doing, just wiped it out. And initially, you know, two weeks to flatten the curve. So I thought, okay, well, I'll sit back for two weeks and wait, and then two weeks turned into a month, and then another month, then another month, then another month, and just went on and on and on. And one big mistake I made financially at that time is I didn't turn to the online world because I really wasn't paying attention to what the Bill Gateses and the Klaus Schwabs of the world were telling us mm -hmm. uh, that there was no going back to normal. And uh, initially, I didn't uh, make the adjustment to doing stuff online that could have helped me to create a, a brand new way of bringing in uh, income. Um, but what I did do is I got absolutely madly obsessed with uh, watching the news, reading articles, and uh, looking at things that were happening in the internet to try and understand what was happening with COVID-19. Okay, before we get into that, let me just sum up okay. here. You seem to come across as a very creative, a go-getter sort of international businessman. Would that be a good summary? Nah. Because it's amazing. All the things you've done in your life, these different, and always it seems to me with a lot of enthusiasm and like the go-getter, we're going to do this. And and uh, yeah, largely successful as well. And uh, You know, I think your assessment is fairly accurate, except I would drop the word international because until such time as, I guess you could 
perhaps start to apply that as I uh, go forward from where I am today because my plans going forward. Well, look, you're an Australian that not just lives in Thailand, but you've learned fluent Thai. Just that well, yeah. makes you international. Besides your excursions okay, to the Bahamas and London, and all, I mean, yeah, I've had an unusual life, David. There's no doubt about that. And the enthusiasm, your comment on my enthusiasm is a very accurate statement. And I probably developed that during my uh, six years in the sales industry and the sales management and yeah. training industry. Um, and it's certainly a characteristic of my personality when I get involved in something and I'm Hey, you're a Sagittarius. How could it be otherwise? Well, there you go. Yeah, right. The astrologer says, how could it be otherwise if you're a true Sagittarius, which you obviously are, the international aspects too. But now you were making the connection to the COVID thing. Because before we're hearing about Ivan, the businessman, really creative, alert for opportunities. But, you know, you did nothing about politics, really, or, you know, such things. But now suddenly, now COVID comes up. And I know you from the other side of this divide, namely the Ivan that's constantly talking about the political, about what's going on medically in the world. So tell us now how you started getting into that and, and what set off your alarm bells. Okay, so I think um, I think that your question about alarm bells is is and politics is very, both of these connected and very relevant. Prior to COVID-19, like many people throughout the world today, probably, you know, hundreds of millions, if not the, at least a billion or two, uh, we had no interest in politics. We were just getting along with our lives and trusting our governments and thinking that, okay, uh, politics can take care of itself. And I think that that was my position prior to 2020. And that of, of billions of people. I was largely exactly. there too. And I think that that's the way it should be. I think that we live our lives locally. We don't live our lives nationally. And only a tiny fraction, uh, probably less than 1% of humanity, looks at the world on a global scale. So what happened to me was because of lock, the first lockdown, I started I've always had a habit of reading a lot, and prior to writing my book, I used to actually consume an extraordinary amount of uh, newspaper articles and stories, um, both in the written format and in on the internet. And that would include reading a wide variety of books on uh, subjects uh, that related to what was happening in the world. And that came... That was actually a great benefit to me because I saw the global financial crisis in 2008. I saw that it was unfolding and was going to majorly impact my own investments. At that time, I was heavily invested in the Australian share market and I had hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt at that point. And in the beginning of 2008, in January, I instructed my broker in Australia to sell everything and just park it all in cash. Yeah. Um, now, unfortunately, after that, because I got, got distracted with studying Thai and uh, then writing my book, and I never got back to investing in the market again in the same way. Um, so I've never said that I'm a good judge of character, but I've always said that I'm a great study. Study, I can 
always make a great study on somebody's character. If you give me time, yes. I will generally work out your strengths, your weaknesses, and uh, so you're an analyst. You. You're an analyst. Yeah, in that I mean, that's that's a good word, David. That I think accurately sums up my abilities. So at the beginning of 2020, I turned to the internet and started reading and consuming everything I could about the global situation and COVID-19. And one of the things that I very quickly came to see was that the American media was just mercilessly attacking Donald Trump. And uh, at this point, mainly due to sound bites, I had probably a bad view of Donald Trump. Mm. But the article I think that really turned me off the American liberal media was one written in the New York Times by Paul Krugman, whose work I had actually been reading for many years. And Paul Krugman turned out this long article just mercilessly uh, attacking Donald Trump and making all sorts of, to borrow one of the liberal media's favourite words, baseless allegations yes. about <laughs> Donald Trump. And I remember putting the uh, article down and thinking, what the hell is going on? Why do these people I had the same experience. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. Why do they hate Donald Trump so much? And so, and what Paul Krugman was uh, doing was just vile. The article was just full of vile rhetoric and patent falsehoods, you know. Yes. And so I thought, well, let's find out. So... The, I think the election season had already started and Donald Trump was uh, out giving lots of uh, talks and rallies while Joe Biden hid in his basement. Mm. So I got on YouTube and I started uh, watching those rallies and listening to him and listening to the conservative voices in America. And I was really shocked and because what I found was a man that was a great leader who was simply uh, a great patriot and speaking to the large group of people that had been disaffected by the globalist agenda, um, particularly globalization. And so I came to understand why people really loved Donald Trump and why he had such a strong fan base. And it's certainly not for the reasons that the liberal media in America uh, say. You mean it's not because they're all racist and so birds of a feather flock together? I I thought that's what they're supposed to believe, right? Trump is a racist, he's a racist, and all his followers are racist too. So, oh, you mean mean that's not true, Ivan? Oh, well, thank you. (laughs) Don't forget the never-ending far-right Nazi fascist uh, label which accurately <laughs> sums up what the Marxist American liberals are, in fact. Exactly. Yeah. They, they accuse o- others of being what they really are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they, yeah, that's an old technique, but a psychological technique, well known yeah. to communists, by the way, and to Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> they use that sort of thing constantly. So, so that was a turning point politically. Um, politically, um, it was a turning point in my realization uh, about what was going on in America, which prior to this, I had no interest in it at all. Yeah. and really didn't know much about your politics in America. Um, but I sat up and took a lot more notice after that. And then during that year, after watching 
hundreds of hours of videos of Trump speaking at rallies and uh, watching the way that people respond to him and reading comments, David. The, the comments in YouTube under the videos yeah. are a gold mine of information and insights. I Indeed often, they are. Indeed they yeah, are. Yeah, I often yes. run through them and look for the bigger comments because the, the, the bigger the comments, generally the better the insights. Yes. Yeah. And uh, so I was transformed to somebody that likes Donald Trump uh, for the fact that he's a true patriot and he really does care about the American people and he puts them heads and shoulders above the globalist agenda. To, well, let, me ask uh, you this. let me ask you this. Before all of this, say 10 years ago, if somebody yep. had asked you to you know, self-identify, would you have said, oh, I'm more to the left or extreme left or the center or a little bit to the right or how would or libertarian how would you have described yourself you know it's a, that's a really interesting question because of my interest since in politics since covid blew up yeah i once sat down on uh, i googled and went looking for something that could defi define my politics so i did a questionnaire on it and it said that i was a left libertarian and uh oh, leftist liberty okay interesting yeah yeah now i don't apply that label to myself i think actually i'm a centrist i think that well okay I, you, you know you know what people call trump as people they're all far right but let me tell you of all the ones yeah. i know and you know i can mention my brother and his family these he works at the post office they're good decent people they're not extremists they're not racists i've seen them interact with other races perfectly naturally uh, and yet they, they've supported Trump all along. And the average Trump supporter, the average Trump supporter of the millions are, is ex more or less just like that. Of course, you'll have maybe people say, well, yes, the Ku Klux Klan vote for Trump. Well, of course, since they're far right, they're not going to vote for Democrats. But by the same token, you say extreme communists, well, they're not going to vote for, you know, Republicans don't vote for Democrats. But you can't say that Democrats are all extreme communists because the extreme communists vote for Democrats. Uh, that's a distortion, well, that's of course. Right. But the Actually, average uh, Trump supporter, from what I've seen, is just a normal American that has strong family values. But you know, maybe okay, maybe even for abortion, some are maybe for abortion. Maybe some are a little maybe the left, some are more the right. But they're centrists, and so it may, but you can disagree in this or agree. I don't know. But what no, what I'm, I see I'm is in the last fifty, agree. sixty, seventy years, uh, what used to be far right, like when I was a little kid. Far right was far right. I mean, we're talking about Curtis LeMay, you know, in the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, telling Kennedy we should have a first strike, you know, nuclear war against Russia. That was far right. Yep. We're talking about some people that really were totally racist. But now the right has gone to the center and the left is going to the extreme left. So I don't like to talk about left and right. I talk about leftists and centrists because people to the right, if, if, if you know, I, I always put it like this. You're at the equator. And you have two friends in planes. One flies to your left, one flies to your right. You think they're getting further and further away from each other. But actually, yeah. they fly around the earth, and they end up both at the same point on the other side of the earth. And that point, that side of the earth is called uh, totalitarianism, collectivism. Totalitarianism. Well, exactly. And you are at the individualism side of the earth and freedom. So far left and far right is basically the same thing. Look at the, the, the communists uh, when they would have their military displays. They would march with goose steps, just like the Nazis did. I mean, and yeah. have big pictures of Stalin, like the Nazis had big pictures of Hitler. It was so much the same. And what are, what are Nazis? National socialists. Exactly. Yes. 
And so it's really not well, about far left against far right. It's about it isn't. totalitarian Actually, collectivism against individualism. You are an individualist. Well, I am an individualist. We believe in a maximum freedom for the individual within a framework yeah. of, of laws that are upheld and it makes sense. There's a better way of defining it, actually, David, than um, defining it by politics, because it's not it's not about the left and the right. Because as you just pointed out, that if the left keeps going left, they pop up on the other side. They're at the extreme right at the fascism end. Fascism and Marxism are just mirror images. They're twin yep. sides of the same coin. So yeah. that's put the politics aside. What's driving the conflict? in America and every other Western nation today. The key issue is globalists versus patriots. Yes. Now, yeah. I just had this conversation yesterday with an uncle of mine back home who's a lawyer, um, and I posed a question to him. I said, is it fair to say that a globalist is a traitor? And he answered that question by telling me uh, a story which I won't get into here because it'll take up too much time. Yeah. But he basically said, yes, that's a fair assessment. And that's my assessment. What the real war in America and repeated in every country, Western country and other countries that are not so much aware of it, is the patriots versus the traders. And the traders are the globalists that are working both for the CCP the people that have been corrupted by the CCP and people that have been corrupted by the uh, Davos globa globalists of yes. the World Economic Forum. Now, those two groups are clearly working together. You can, for example, the, the clearest, and I was only writing about this to myself this morning, the clearest way to identify that the World Economic Forum and the Chinese Communist Party are in bed together is the policies for COVID-19, all of the policies that the World Health Organization gave the world at the beginning of 2020 came directly from the recommendations of the Chinese Communist Party. Yes. And that can you can actually read about that if you just look up the uh, 2020 uh, report on the joint mission of the World Health Organization and China. Uh, to China in February 2020. It's a 40-page document, and every single policy that the World Health Organization foisted on the world, lockdowns, social distancing, using temperature machines, ventilators for patients in hospitals, yeah. using remdesivir. The Chinese actually recommended that as well, which destroys people's kidneys and helps them to die. Yes. I think 25% of the people end up dying if they're in ventilators and remdesivir. Yeah, actually, ventilators is much higher than 25%. Uh, yeah, you... I've heard up like 70% too. First, are 25%. Yeah. They're studying it more, I suppose. Uh, but now, okay, what... let me play devil's advocate for a second here. Um, yeah. Somebody could say, you know, from the other side, well, yeah, of course, uh, the, uh, the who was following the the directions of China uh, because the Chinese were doing it correctly, and so they want to do it correctly, so they learn from China. What would you say to that? Right. And not, not, not that I believe that, but I'm saying you're devil's advocate the, here. The reason, the reason I call it just horseshit is this. 
Am I allowed to say that word on your program? Well, I always try to avoid vulgarity and everything. That's fine. I try to avoid it because I I like to think that somewhere there's some little kids listening to me, which is, of course, a fantasy. It's it's, it's crazy. (laughs) But you know what I mean? Not really. What I really think is that a lot of people, especially on the more conservative side, might be very religious (laughs) and they don't like vulgarity. And I don't believe in offending people. All right. So, in other words, privately talking, we can talk however we want. But uh, and uh, okay. uh, but if if it slips so, out, it's no big deal because yeah. you know. Here's the reason that that's rubbish. First of all, the World Health Organization didn't rely on science. There were no scientific papers and no adequate peer-reviewed uh, trials of not peer-reviewed, uh, peer-reviewed uh, studies yeah. that were done to the satisfaction of science that what right. the CCP was saying actually worked. But you can actually track the provenance of everything that the Chinese Communist Party did about the COVID-19 lockdowns, the censorship and everything else. You can actually track the provenance a little bit further and it's all written down there for you to see. How do you track it? So for many years, most people have been following the covid uh, tyranny, will be aware that the Bill Gates uh, pandemic planning uh, industrial complex have been running uh, pandemic war games for many, many years, planning what, you know, we should do if, you know, there was a worldwide pandemic. Well, what was it, the last one was October 2019, just before the breakout, they do this big... Correct. <laughs> I mean, really. Now, what, was, what was that called, David? I forget. What was it called? It was called Event 201. Oh, yes. Event 201. Okay. Now, I remember that. as a consequence of event... Now, what's important here is the head of the Chinese CDC, the Center of Disease Control in China, attended that simulation, right, for Event 201. Now, that was the last time they did a simulation of a war games for a pandemic. Now, out of that meeting came seven recommendations. They wrote up seven recommendations for governments and public health authorities around the world and circulated it everywhere. Those seven recommendations basically formed the tyranny of the COVID-19 policies that turned science and medicine upside down. Things like censorship, uh, lockdowns, um, face masks, etc. Now, then what happened next was the outbreak, outbreak occurred in Wuhan in China and the CCP followed those seven recommendations and basically said they work, right? When the joint mission of the WHO and the China mission turned up in China, the CCP, if you read that 40-page document, you see that they're basically confirming that those seven recommendations all work, which completely and utterly turned science and medicine and hundreds of years of pandemic uh, and epidemic management upside down. So it was just a very sophisticated uh, way of justifying what they were doing. But it was, in my mind, just all rubbish. Yeah, interesting, because of China, following recommendations of China, I remember uh, reading that there was a congressman in the U.S. who in March of 2020, I believe it was, uh, wrote to Fauci saying that he's learned that in China they're starting to use hydroxychloroquine. 
Yes. As if I'm in 2021, I'm not sure. I think it was 2020. Uh, it would have been in 2020 because they use they use that and the Chinese scientists have put papers out on it. And they also use ivermectin. They've used them all the way along. Yeah, and that Actually, was and he wrote to Fauci in any case that they're using hydroxychloroquine with great success. And Fauci just, you know, I guess tossed it in the waste paper basket. So well, you see, <laughs> I just read that paper that I recommended uh, people look at. Uh, on the mission to China. Uh, you, uh, could you, send, uh, could you send me a link to that paper? I can indeed. Because I, I, will, I will include it in the description to this. I'm also going to include, yep. for you people listening, uh, Ivan has a Substack page. He writes really, really good, uh, insightful articles. And I'm going to put that there too if you want to look into it. But yeah, this uh, this document, if you could uh, send me some kind of link to it, I'll include that I there will. so people can read it for themselves. Yep. Um, now... In that document, uh, one of the interesting things that the Chinese said to the World Health Organization, which was really clear from the beginning that they were not interested in doing because they wanted to create a greater crisis in the rest of the world. The Chinese said that early treatment saves lives and the faster that they treat people that are symptomatic or ill, the quicker they can cure them and save lives. Now, of course, we know, you know, that the World Health Organization, Bill Gates, Fauci, every public health official in almost every Western country all followed the WHO's uh, propaganda when the WHO claimed that this is a novel virus. That's a lie just right there because it's 90% the same as the SARS-1 virus, David. So it's not a novel or brand new virus at all. But based on that statement, they said that there's no treatment. Now, that's a very misleading statement. <laughs> they, said, they actually were very clever in the way they worded it. You can still see it on their website today. They said, because it's a virus, there's no treatment for a virus. Now, that's true, but it's absolutely deceiving because the key uh, point is this. You get a viral infection and you develop symptoms. So what's happening is you're getting inflammation from the symptoms. So yes. even at the common cold stage, you can treat those symptoms. Now the SARS-CoV-2 virus creates, the only disease all coronaviruses create in the first stage is the common cold. So it's like the, the WHO telling the world, oh, there's no treatment for the common cold. Well, there's yeah. not a, there's not a cure, but there is treatment. And they make tre- billions of dollars selling us drugs to treat the symptoms, right? But <laughs> Exactly. Which And there's already a huge industry doing that. But yeah. they further complicated it by saying, oh, there's no treatment. And uh, they made the statement on their uh, graphic infographic on the website that uh, you, there might be a co-infection of bacteria. Well, here's what's interesting about COVID-19 pneumonia. Now, the inflammation creates problems inside your lungs and you get conditions that create the growth of bacteria and you get pneumonia. Now, the WHO misleading the world and all of our governments and public health and media that have uh, trumpeted this propaganda, they've basically told the world that there's no treatment for pneumonia. But substitute the word COVID-19 for pneumonia, there's no treatment for COVID-19. But what they're really saying is there's no treatment for pneumonia. That's just a lie. Yes. Because there's always been treatment for pneumonia. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it gets 
even more sinister than that because Mr. Fauci in 2008 co-authored a National Institute of Health paper on the Spanish flu. They took all of the cadavers and uh, leftover, uh, I think it was lung tissue of victims, victims from the Spanish flu in 1918 and they studied them to see what caused their deaths. That paper states categorically that 97% of the people who died in the Spanish flu died from bacterial pneumonia. Huh, yeah. And Fauci's recommendation in 2008 was they should stock up on antibiotics for treating pneumonia during a pandemic. Now, why didn't Mr. Fauci, who was the head of the National Coronavirus Task Force in America, but also he was actually heading up the most powerful public health industry in the world, so he was really speaking to the world. Why didn't Mr. Fauci tell everybody to treat for pneumonia and treat for the bacterial infection <laughs> yes. that created? Huh? Well, yeah. Right, so you know, they, they wanted people to die. That's the only answer you can exactly, come up with. Exactly, exactly. For me, it was so clear. Uh, I think from February of last year, when I read the article of Michael Yeadon, we talked about that privately, and I thought, oh my God, his reasoning is—it's it, just impeccable. It is so clear. Then, it's—it's it's a genocidal plan. Uh, with Fauci, yeah. I'll tell you. From the very beginning, when remember that first month, he said, oh, no, people don't have – don't wear masks. That's not necessary. And the next month, he said, oh, yes, people must wear masks. Now, I would think – the guy was 80 years – now he's like 81, 82. He's like 79, 80 years old, working in the area of virus all his life. And he never thought to ask his professor university, hey, professor, if there's a virus, should we wear a mask or not? At, at the age of 80, he still didn't know that? That one month he's flailing like a like a fish on a beach or something. Uh, one month, oh, no, no masks are necessary. Next, oh, yes, they are necessary. He doesn't even know that at the age of 80. And I thought there's something wrong with this guy. That's a, well, right? I think that's is, a fair perception. Right. His, his answer was when they asked him, I said, oh, well, uh, I thought there might, if everybody buys masks, there might be a shortage for the doctors. And we went, didn't want that. So, ba yeah. so basically he said he lied. So in other words, Dr. Fauci, you know, you're telling us that COVID is so deadly and fatal. And, but, and you're telling people not to wear a mask, even though you think they will help. So in other words, you want to kill people. I mean, no matter how you look yeah. at it, the guy you know, is crooked and false and, 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 and a, 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 what a war, well, basically a war criminal, I would say, because we're in a war. He's committed crimes against humanity going back to the yeah. AIDS epoch. People should read Bobby Kennedy's book where he touches yep. on that. This Fauci has been a criminal for years, which, of course, begs the question, why did Trump even have him still in that position? But we won't I get into that today because it'll go too long. I mean, uh, let's get to the mask part of yeah. this specifically. Yeah, so we're, we're here at the mask part now with Fauci. So let's just reflect on a couple of things that uh, you called Mr. Fauci a war criminal. And I don't think that that term is unfair at all. Um, but Senator Rand Paul, who has been taking Fauci to task in Senate hearings for more than a year, I think, um, Rand Paul often is too kind to Fauci and yeah. he says things like, you know, Fauci told the noble lie that, you know, there weren't going to be enough face masks. Well, that's just more rubbish because the Czech Republic, when it decided that everybody should wear a face mask mm -hmm. and they 
certainly didn't have enough for their 10 million population. They got everybody to make them at home, and in three weeks, exactly. the whole country had face masks. That's what I was saying. You put YouTube videos, this is how you make this life-essential yeah. face mask, and people will be yeah. making them at home. And if you don't want to make them, there'd be in every block of apartments. Some woman doesn't have much money, for example. I'm going to sew a lot of face masks and sell them to my neighbors. She'd make exactly. good money that way. You know, they did that in, in India. The Indian government um, had a team of people, uh, when they believed that face masks were going to work, they translated how to make your own homemade face mask for five rupiah and uh, translated it into about 26 different languages and circulated all over the country. So a country with one point, I think, uh, I think they've got 1.6 billion or 1.4 billion people. I think about one point, no, 1. 2. China's 1. 1.4. I think it is like 1.2 or something. But hey, okay. a lot of people, over a billion people. Well, over exactly. China. And the United States, the richest country in the world with 300 million people and still huge amounts of manufacturing capacity. Of Actually, course. America <laughs> makes 12% of the world's face masks. The last time I checked this number, um, yeah. or they export them, I think. Uh, China exports 25% and Germany 13 The last yeah. time I checked those figures. No, we but, could have um, had billions and billions of face masks in no time, obviously. Exactly. It was, it was distraction. When Fauci did that, it was just distraction from the truth. And the truth is they, you know, didn't want... Um, people initially, they didn't want people in face masks because I think that face masks do slow some transmission. We'll come up to this in a, in a moment, yeah. but um, certainly not uh, all of it. And uh, it is a bit of a red herring, which I mentioned to you before we got on air. Um, so Fauci, when Rand Paul is very kind to Fauci and said, I was telling a noble lie, I call that uh, rubbish. Personally, I think that that's rubbish. I think Rand Paul is just being the polite, nice guy that he is. Yeah. Um, and maybe he has still, despite all of the things that have happened or all the people have died, he still doesn't understand that Fauci is part of a team that are deliberately killing Americans and spreading uh, their... You know, uh, about that, it's possible. But I think when you see the behavior of so many politicians, there are things going on at another level, I guess we could say a higher or lower level, however... That, that it's really hard to recognize. Uh, I think practically all of these politicians are playing a certain game. I don't mean they're all evil by that, but there are things going on at a higher level and they can't say the truth as it really is. The time yes. isn't there yet. And there's that's, so much evidence for that true. that I've seen. Once you consider that as a possibility, you know, I always compare it to being a detective. Uh, you know, there's a dead guy in his library and, you know, the window's broken and this and that. And you start looking into it. And you first think, oh, some intruder came in from outside. But then you hear that his wife took out like a $10 million insurance policy on him one month before. Well, now she becomes a suspect. You also hear that she had fights with her husband regularly. But then you hear yep. that his business partner was having big disputes with him and his business partner is going to inherit most of the company that he has. And so what do you do? Well, you have, OK, theory one. Somebody broke in from outside. Somebody didn't know him. Theory two, it's the wife. Theory three, they're all, guess what they are? In a way, they're conspiracy theories. Yes. What I can't stand is when people say, oh, it's not a conspiracy theory that I'm saying. Well, of course it is. Conspiracies do exist. What they should I be do. saying is it's not an unfounded conspiracy theory. Any good detective, a Sherlock Holmes, mm -hmm. you'll have five or six or ten conspiracy theories. 
But then you ch- you check out the evidence and you accumulate evidence for each one of those. I've done that yes. for different theories. And the, th- the theory that best explains what is going on is that there's something behind the scenes going on that's bigger than even you and I could really even imagine. And that so much of what we're seeing is totally fake and we're being lied to by both sides. I'm saying this not because I'm trying to defend Rand Paul, but in a way, yes, uh, in a normal world, whether you go back to ancient Rome, ancient Greek, uh, uh, Greece, uh, the Renaissance time, you always have people, one side saying one thing, one side saying the other, and even being vocal about it, and even in their congresses and their assemblies, whatever. But now we have this strange thing that, you know, the election was stolen, very obviously. Trump then steps back, but then for months, practically everybody in Congress just acts like, oh, well, Biden won, what a shame. And I thought, there's something weird here. There's something else going on. I won't get into my my theory there, but I think it's very well-founded. I just want to say here that with Rand Paul, I think he's going easier on him because in theory (laughs) now, they would have more than enough to bury Fauci, to put him on trial and to execute him for, for treason, for crimes against humanity, mass murder. They'd have more than enough, but they're not doing it yet. And the reasons why they're not doing it yet. And we can't assume it's because they're all evil, because never in history have we had all the leaders, you know, large and small, all being evil. That's never happened if we go against human nature as a whole. Therefore, there's something else going on that I can't explain in all details, but I have a fairly good idea. And so we shouldn't, you know, with Rand Paul that he says this or that, uh, it's one more weird thing to add to the list because I, I guarantee you, Rand Paul is no fool. Not that I'm a big Rand Paul fan in general, but he's no fool. He knows that this is a genocidal plan. But just yep. one little thing. If a politician like Rand Paul, somebody comes out and says, we now know the truth. This is a genocidal plan and half of Americans have been poisoned and will probably die within five to ten years. What would and happen? Not just- not just, the economy, uh, totally, nobody goes to work anymore. People are going crazy, yep. committing suicide. You can't say that. You can't say that. That's why Fauci can't be arrested and put on trial now, because all these things would then come out and people would go absolutely crazy. Yeah, but it's not just Americans, David. Um, it's, no, it's not people yeah. all over the world. Right. Yeah. Actually, look, I'm going to recommend another link that I'll – uh, get you to drop in the notes below the yeah, yeah, right. Um I just in the last 48 hours read mm. what I think is one of the most uh, wonderful uh, summations of the last two years. A lovely uh, neuroscientist, sorry, neurosurgeon is the yeah. right term. American guy, Dr. Uh, Richard L. Uh, Blay, Blay Luck, I think is his name. Hang on, I'm looking at it now. Sorry, got that wrong. Russell L. Blay Lock. Yeah. Now, he wrote a paper called COVID Update, What is the Truth? And published it in a medical journal after it was peer-reviewed. Now, you know that peer-reviewed papers are the gold standard in yes. medicine. Yes. And uh, he uh, sums up an enormous amount of the issues that we've been facing. But one of the most important issues that he does uh, refer to a lot of uh, research on is the 
negative impacts of these vaccines, or they're not really vaccines. I personally think they're a bioweapon. Um, yes. And it's incorrect yes, to call them a vaccine for a lot of reasons. The most important reasons are one, they're only available for public use under the emergency use authorization. Yeah. That does not make them a vaccine. They don't have an approval that calls them a vaccine. Two, um, they're emergency drugs, uh, which are experimental drugs being used under an emergency use authorization, so they're not a vaccine. Number three, the manufacturers never called them a vaccine. Yes. The <laughs> manufacturers only ever claimed that they would alleviate the symptoms. Now, that's the, the role of, you know, an aspirin medicine, yes. right? <laughs> right. That's not the role of a vaccine. And then four, we know damn well that the vaccinated are not protected and they still transmit the virus. And in fact, right. in this yeah. paper that I'm recommending to you by Russell Blaylock, he points out that the super spreaders are the vaccinated. Yes. Which is really sad. Others have reported the same uh, thing. Yeah. yeah. And that no, it's a bioweapon. The purpose of this bioweapon right. is really yeah. not to kill people immediately. There's some people react that way and tens of thousands have died. According to some studies, hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions have already died. They die of things like heart attack, stroke, right? Another, exactly. So it doesn't seem obvious, but when you look at the numbers like that uh, big insurance firm in Indiana pointed out, the all-cause mortality rate has gone up 40%, 40% more people are dying. They said that's something you expect once in 2,000 years. You just don't have that normally. It's a total disaster. In other words, many more people are dying of cancer, many more people are dying of heart attacks, many more people with strokes, many more people with tuberculosis, you name it. And there are more people dying of it, anything that is caused by a weakened immune system. The goal of these bioweapons is to weaken over time ideally for the evil ones, to weaken over time the people's immune systems. So then they die of things that don't seem related to the vaccine. And then you, but then you could always say, oh, it must be because so many had COVID. That weakened the immune system. Well, COVID has the spike proteins in it, but the vaccines turn your body into a, into a factory of spike proteins. That's right. So, uh, I mean, people, yeah. uh, anybody out there listening to us that still hasn't seen this, start to think and put the pieces together. And yes, yep. it's so sad, it's so tragic, it's so angering, but the fact that it's still going on and that even people like Trump aren't calling it out, that's even scarier, I'll tell you. you know, for a long time, it's that's just, even scarier. It's really disturbed me that Donald Trump doesn't call it out. And he was on the Candace Owens show and Candace Owens started talking about people that were dying of vaccine side yes. effects and being hurt. And Trump just spoke over the top of her and said, no, 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 that's that's rubbish. These vaccines are beautiful. They, right. They and so people criticized Trump and say, hey, and she sort of persisted in the questioning. He just spoke over and say, oh, yeah. well, he's rude or he or he's just too dumb. No, no, it's not that. And this is what scares me. I, now, there are two possibilities here. Either he's part of it and he wants to kill off people, too, just like the other side or the other thing is that doesn't worry me all that much because there's so you know people that follow him people i don't know uh even people like ezra cohen they talk about the the, the vaccines and you know uh, uh, not being vaccines everybody is yep. except trump so this leads me to something else it probably i would think is the case that with the other side because there are always negotiations with the enemy somehow you know the, the west had that with yeah. hitler during the Cold War, there are always secret negotiations. They probably said, if Trump starts saying that this is like a, a campaign, it's going to be, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to you know, explode nuclear bombs in America, we're going to do whatever you can imagine. 
there must be some reason why he's saying this. Uh, or, and this is really scary, I, I put that as, this is a very small probability. Suppose yeah. it comes from above, and I don't mean God and Jesus Christ. Suppose the aliens that they're talking about, suppose the aliens <laughs> have told certain leaders, now, and I know it sounds far out, but, you know, with UFOs, people used to say, oh, there's no such thing. But now even, you know, the military is putting out one video to, after the other. And I need to year, slow you down. What's that? I really don't want to do the, the aliens discussion. <laughs> Neither online. do I. But I'm saying, let's um, just suppose, and, and this is only, you know, 1% probability. Suppose some greater force has said, look, a lot of humans have to die. This is the way it's going to be done. Then nobody could do anything about it. I don't believe well, that. Some people are saying cool. that. That's the only reason why I mention it. I think, though, Trump yeah. is saying that because if he didn't say that, things would be a lot worse. I don't know in what form, but it's very strange. Okay. You know, I don't believe he's just well, too dumb or no, his aides haven't told him about this. David, there are two yes. great forces in the world today that don't give a damn that millions of people or even billions of people uh, will be wiped out. Yes. What are those two great forces? First one is whoever put the Georgia Guidestones up in America. Yeah. Right? Now, <laughs> right. whoever put – now, for the listeners that don't know what the Georgia Guidestones are, just Google them. It's a set of – Wikipedia, Georgia Guidestones. They have the entire text yeah. there. I think it's a set of granite – uh, huge granite blocks put yes. up similar to Stonehenge in England, but right. they've been placed in Georgia and America in a public place. And they basically explain that whoever wrote those uh, uh, paragraphs in, in the Georgia Guidestones, that they think the ideal number of people for uh, – the planet Earth is just 500 million and that everybody, the 500 million should live in harmony and balance with the natural world. And they wrote these uh, stones. I think there's 10 of them in, and they put this statement up in 10 different languages. Now, whoever paid for them, that co they cost a fortune. So yes. somebody extremely wealthy with an extreme agenda for the population of the uh, planet to be reduced, wrote those statements and inscribed them on the Georgia Guidestones and put them up in a public place for everybody to see. Yes. Now, let's just discuss what this relates to. This relates to a movement that's been around for more than 100 years, which actually I only read recently the British started it, the Americans copied it, and then Hitler imitated them. Yeah. And that's the eugenics movement. Yes. People can't imagine today that eugenics was something that was extremely popular throughout the history of the Western world. Because the 1920s and 30s especially, yeah. yeah. Goes, David, it goes back further than that. The British are the people that started eugenics program when they were running around the world uh, ah, yes, conquering yes. different countries and... Um, and the one example that comes to my mind was the concentration camps that they put in place. I think it was when they were fighting uh, against the um, South Africans. What's the, the Afrikaans? The, the Boer War, you mean? Late yeah, the, maybe it was the Boer War. Yeah. But the British invented the concentration camps and they created them in order to basically slaughter the populations and to reduce the 
populations that were defying them and resisting them. Well, Belgian and, King Leopold in the 18, what was it, 1870s, 80s, he exactly. had, had like millions of blacks killed there. Exactly. It was a total Actually, genocide there. Yeah. All of the European powers that were colonizers basically invented fascism in that era of our Western history yeah. because they empowered private uh, companies to go around the world waging war on other nations for uh, to plunder, rape, and pillage. Yeah. And um, that's fascism at the end of the day. The East India Company of the uh, Dutch and the British, yeah. where they accumulated huge amounts of capital to create those companies, and they went around the war, world colonizing other nations and destroying other people's population, uh, sorry, other nations' populations. Yeah. That right. both fascism and it's genocide, right, or eugenics. Now, the eugenics movement grew up, started, as I understand it, in Britain, spread itself to the American elites, and it was extremely popular at the beginning of last century. Yes. And it was until World War II. Hitler borrowed those ideas from other Western countries. Yes. And... Due to the Holocaust, then the eugenics movement became very unpopular. But did that, does that mean that it went away? Well, apparently not, because the Georgia Guidestones would like to have the human population reduced down to 500 million. Now, now weren't so, they put up about 19 in the 80s? Yeah, it was put up quite some time ago. I can't remember when, but quite some time ago. I mean, but not all that long ago, I mean. Yeah, right? quite some time 1980, ago. that's only 40 years ago. Uh, I'll look it up here, but I think it was 1980s. Uh, let me, I'll have that in just a now, few seconds here. That's one group that I'm saying. Oh, excuse me, 1980. Happy, 1980 it was. Yeah, yeah, that's one group that I'm saying is happy to depopulate the earth or attack the populations that they think are full of, as Hillary Clinton likes to call them, the deplorables. Right, yeah, yeah. Now, Another group that's quite happy to decimate the population of uh, their own country and yeah. other people, um, maybe it would be fair to say their own country through incompetence, and that's the Chinese Communist Party because, you know, they've had periods in their history where millions died because of really bad government policies. Yes. But I'm not concerned about that. There is a document on the internet called The Secret Speech of General Chi Hao Tien. Uh, it's on the blog of a blogger, Nyquist is his name. Could you send me the link to that too, maybe? If you okay, I'll it. make a note of that as well. You know, putting that link up might, might, might really screw the search results for your podcast. Uh, so what, will, oh. what I'm going to get to Oh, that's do, better not to, yeah. Yeah, I'll, you can put up the name of it and yeah. um, tell people to do their own search because whenever I've attempted to share it anywhere, yeah. uh, Google just kills it. Oh, wow, um, okay. Now, that tells you something. Now, what that speech, that's a, apparently a speech that was given by a Chinese general in the year about 2000. Yeah. And then five years later, a translated version of it popped up on the internet. And basically it reads like um, virus biochemical warfare 
uh, with a vaccine bioweapon for depopulating the Western countries. Well, yeah, the Chinese were writing back in the 1990s, the ideal would be in America to have only 100 million people. So they could then conquer America and grow their food there and the 100 million be working as their slaves. They actually you know, really? talked about that 20 some years ago. When did ago. you see that? I believe that was in the book written by two Chinese colonels. I don't remember names because they're Chinese names. I can't even pronounce Chinese. But it, I could uh, send it to you, send you a link or whatever. And these two Similarly. military men sent a book uh, 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 wrote a book about uh, relations of the West and things. I believe it was in there. I believe it was in there. That's but, really uh, interesting. Yeah, th and, well, also, I saw a clip from Chinese TV, you know, with, with subtitles. This was a few years ago, and there was some guy there saying somebody worked for the state, and he said, yes, it'll soon be possible, which means, yes, it's already possible, uh, to create viruses that only target one specific race. And the TV guy, you know, the person on the TV show, didn't say, oh, my God, that's terrible. He said, oh, that's really interesting. <laughs> you know, they've been yeah. working on these things for years. And, uh, wow. You know, we're talking about, well, we were talking about masks before. We've already hit the one-hour mark. So we have to wrap it up here. Uh, wow. Okay. So before we wrap it up, yeah. let me give the listeners the key point in relation to yes, please face do. masks. A key insight that I don't see being discussed anywhere else is that the biggest red herring about face masks and just about everything is transmission. Transmission is the claim that is used to justify face masks. They claim that if you stop transmission or reduce it, you're going to reduce people getting sick getting hospitalized and dying. But this transmission is based on faked PCR tests. 97% of PCR tests are false positives in the yes. group that don't have any symptoms because they're healthy people. They're not sick. And so when they claim that the PCR test is evidence of transmission and they have to stop it by making people wear face masks or do lockdowns or socially distance, that's a red herring. Now, why is it a red herring? Because the only thing that is important in a pandemic or an epidemic or anything else is people that get sick and yes. get hospitalized and die. That's the only statistic that's important. And there is no scientific papers proving that face masks reduce illness or reduce hospitalizations or reduce deaths. Exactly. There is none not anywhere in the scientific journals or or scientific literature anywhere nobody has done that study right and uh, however there are lots of observational data that shows a very opposite that when you drop the face mask mandates the cases go down and the best examples for that are florida and texas in the united states and South Dakota and North Dakota. South Dakota, many people forget that South Dakota didn't do any of the COVID-19 policies, none, zero. Yeah. They stayed open. There were no face mask mandates. There was no mandates, period. And when you compare the data in South uh, Dakota to North Dakota, the data in South Dakota is better on every level. Less Look cases, less hospitalizations. I didn't know that. That's really interesting. That's really Most people 
overlook it because it's a small state and uh, yeah and of course the mass mainstream media is trying to talk everything up and create fear so yeah it gets it gets overlooked but South Dakota and North Dakota I've seen the charts uh, relation to the face mask comparison um, but the biggest uh, observational data is Florida and Texas as soon as they decided they were going to drop all the face all, all of the COVID policies yeah. in early 2021, yeah. the Democrats and the mass media screamed COVID Armageddon, COVID yeah. hell. Joe Biden made some really foul comments about the Texas governor. I can't remember what they were, but they were really foul. Yeah. And of course, it all proved to be utter rubbish. What happened was everything went down and life went back to normal. Yeah. One of the few places, of course, you know, yeah. the few places in the world that are what we would consider normal. Yeah, so well, we see it, the whole the whole thing was fake in so many ways, and there was a, an agenda yeah. behind it—a very evil agenda—to take down the United States and Western Europe mainly, and to move us towards the new world order, and along the way to start their plan to murder most of the human population. And you know, no matter how you look at it, if you look at it deeply enough, look at all the evidence. Just put those the pieces together, you find. And yeah. that's, that's the theory that best explains everything we are seeing. I think you're right, but I want to uh, put one footnote on your comment. You made the comment on America and, and Western Europe. And it's very easy for us um, from our viewpoints, wherever we're sitting in the world, to think it's all about us. This is, I sit in Thailand, yes. so I see the devastation to the Thai people and the Thai economy. One of my... English students is a VP at one of the local uh, Thai national banks, and he was discussing the impact of the last two years yeah. on the six different regions in mm. Thailand with me. And he pointed out that in the south of Thailand, which is mainly tourism dependent, yeah. 29% of his bank's customers were in the tourism sector. Others were in like agriculture or wholesaling or um, yeah manufacturing and of all of the customers in in the bank 29 percent that are non-performing loans today need restructuring are all the tourism sector i mean the, the entire tourism oh no sector. i wasn't suggesting that it's only in those places the reason why i point out america and western europe is because certain chinese military people have always said they're the ones you have to take down first because if you want to That's conquer it. the world, they don't have yeah. to. China doesn't have, you know, they could take Thailand when tomorrow if they really wanted to. It's they could take Japan, they could take, but but to take the United States and Western Europe, ah, that's not, and of course then there's Russia. We won't get in that if we have to stop now because it's been well over an hour. Yeah, I'd like to time. thank you, Ivan, uh, uh, for this. This is really insightful, and we're going to do it again sometime. I hope. All right. So thank you very right. much. Well, thank you. Thank you, David, for the opportunity. It's uh, wonderful to talk to you. Uh, it's always a pleasure. And uh, uh, it's an honor to appear on your podcast as well. Thank you for that. And an honor to have you. Thank you for listening, people. And thank you for following us on this, The Path of Socrates. Bye now. <laughs>